come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 24 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here, recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be something a little bit different, even though the format's going to stay the same. But since I'm done with all the movies that were from 1920, I have moved to 1930 and I could only find one horror movie from that year. So that is going to be one of the featured reviews on this of The Bat Whispers, as this is going to start a new series of theme shows here where I'm going to keep pairing movies from 2020 and pair them up with movies that are from a year that ends in zero. So this is going to be the only episode from 1930, so this is Journey Through the Aughts Episode 1, though. And the other featured review here for the 2020 release is MOM, Mothers of Monsters. And I also have six mini-reviews on this episode of A Good Marriage, Psycho for The Beginning, Cry Wolf, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Rock and Roll Musical, and Cujo. So what I'm going to go ahead and do though is before I get you over to those mini reviews I'm going to do a musical break before we get into that. Enjoy. Yeah. 
for my first mini review of this week. It is going to be A Good Marriage from 2014. This was directed by Peter Askin and written by Stephen King from also a short story by Stephen King. This is starring Joan Allen, Anthony La Pegila, and Stephen Lang. This is a crime drama thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, after 25 years of a good marriage, what will Darcy do once she discovers her husband's sinister secret? Now, this is a film that I picked up on DVD a couple years ago after it came out, as I remember reading the short story from King and really liking it. Now, the first time I actually watched this, though, was on Prime when my girlfriend, Jamie, thought this sounded good, and I never pass up a chance to watch a movie that she's interested in. Now, to kind of just give some background information, we are following Bob Anderson, who is La Pegila. As he is given an award from work, he does taxes and is one of the best people that works for Bill Gaines, who is portrayed by Michael Malley. Also at this party is his wife, Darcy, who is Joan Allen. And also there is their daughter, Petra, who is Kristen Connolly, her fiancé, who is Vince Dorn, portrayed by Will Rogers, and their son, Donnie, who is Theo Stockman. Also at this party is Darcy's best friend, Betty Pike, who is portrayed by Cara Bonio. She's pretty drunk and is upset about the serial killer that is stalking their area. In Actually, the whole New England type area is where these uh, attacks and killings are happening. Now, the married couple goes home to celebrate some more, and we get to see kind of what their routine is to make love. Now, Bob does have a bit of a wandering eye as he looks outside to see Betty as she is kissing someone in her garage. But he is called back to his wife as they're about to get intimate. Now, it should be pointed out that Darcy one night goes out into their garage and finds something hidden there that might point to that her husband could be this serial killer known as Beatty. And on top of that, there is a man who we learn much later on. His name is Holt Ramsey, portrayed by Stephen Lang, who is kind of following them around and keeping an eye on what Bob is doing. Now, I knew coming in that, as I had said before, that I'd read the short story and at the time of writing this, this was the last book of short stories that had come out from Stephen King. This one intrigued me as I knew that he had based this off of the BTK killer who had lived a double life where his family and his church had no idea of what he was doing. Now this one plays out differently, but still brings up a moral dilemma that sparked conversation between my girlfriend and I after we finished this. I don't recall the story playing out like it does here in the film, as I do believe that after she figures out the secret, it kind of ends soon after, where this one plays out to see what she ends up doing, but I could be wrong there though as it's been some time. Now I really wanted to delve into what you do if you discover that your significant other is a murderer. There's the moral obligation to turn them in because if you don't, they could continue to kill and that would be on you as an accomplice. On the other side, like in the case here, Darcy and Bob have been married for 25 years. They have two successful children that have lives of their own. This could set off a domino of effects that could ruin both of them, even though they had nothing to do with it. When I asked Jamie, she straight away said she'd turn me in. I played, of course, the devil's advocate, but I probably would as well. There's another layer to this, though, that Bob could have gotten away with what he's been doing for so long as he's a master manipulator. The lines that he feeds to his wife makes her wonder if she can trust him to do what he promises that he will. There's also that fear in the back of her mind that he can't be fully trusted because the betrayal of figuring out of being kept in the dark for so long of what he has been doing. So that does make sense that there would be that dilemma. 
Now shifting this over to the pacing, it runs about 102 minutes. I never got bored with it, so I don't really necessarily think there's an issue there. I do think that there probably was a bit that could have been cut from this to get it down to 90 minutes, to be honest. And I'm going off of the old adage here that the first 90 are free, and you need to convince me for anything over that. There's a bit of filler in my eyes that could have been trimmed from this movie. But I do like where it ends up and how this ordeal changes Darcy. Speaking of which, the acting in this movie I thought was good. This is really a vehicle for Alan as our lead with Lepigia here as our secondary, but important driver to the story. Alan's performance as Darcy was good. I feel horrible for her with what she discovers and coming to terms what she has to do in order to survive. She also has to keep in mind her children as she's a really good mother and I do see a shade of my own in her to be honest. La Pagila I thought was good as well. He establishes the norms of his character and then we get to see the dark side of it. That works very well for me. And then I would have to say that Lang, Bonio, Connolly, and the rest of the cast do well in rounding this out for what was needed in shaping these two stars for what they end up in the end. As for the effects of the movie, which there really aren't a lot, actually, to be honest. The only time I can really think of it is at the climax of the movie where Darcy comes to terms with what she has to do. There are pictures of the victims from Beatty, which they did a really good job in making them look realistic. We do get that Darcy is having to deal with things in her mind that we see play out. That did work for me, and I would say that the cinematography was solid as well. Now, with that said, this movie poses an interesting question of what you'd do if you were in this person's position. This also shows us some things that really did happen, and we truly don't know someone like we think we do. The movie does run a bit long, but not enough to ruin it for what we got or get boring. I thought the acting was good. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but we also don't necessarily need them. The soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, but it also didn't hurt the movie either. They do use a lot of older songs that are fitting for more of our star's characters' times when they were younger. Overall though, I'd say this is an above average movie in my opinion, and I'd recommend this for horror and non-horror fans alike as it isn't overly graphic and does pose an interesting question and story. So my rating here was going to be a 7 out of 10. And for my next mini-review is going to be Psycho 4 The Beginning. This is from 1990. It was directed by Mick Garris, and it was written by Joseph Stefano and from characters by Robert Block. It stars Anthony Perkins, CCH Pounder, and Henry Thomas. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. The synopsis being, Norman Bates recalls his childhood with his abusive mother while a new fear that could send him over the edge. Now this was another sequel to Psycho that I really didn't know about until after college and thought it probably wasn't good due to just being a sequel to a classic. It wasn't until I heard podcasts stating that this was pretty solid that I decided to check all of them out. Now this one I actually could not find at first so I ended up getting the Blu-ray here recently and checked it out that way. And just to kind of delve a little bit more into what the synopsis doesn't really give to us is this movie is following a radio personality of Fran Ambrose, who is Pounder. And this program that they're doing that night is the guest is going to be Dr. Leo Richmond, who is Warren Frost. And the program is on boys who kill their mothers. And this is what the book that Dr. Richmond also wrote. Now, at first they have a man who did just this and has served his time and is now out and his grandfather helped him as putting the blame on the mother which is his daughter things all change though when they get a caller that goes by the name of ed as he states that's exactly what he did is kill his mother as well 
then we actually get to see that this is Norman Bates, who Anthony Perkins is reprising the role. He recounts different murders that he committed in his youth, which we see these play out as a younger version of himself, who is played by Henry Thomas. And we also get to see his mother, who is Norma, portrayed by Olivia Hussey in this movie. He continues to tell his stories, with Dr. Richmond slowly piecing together who they are from. Things then take a turn, though, when Norman states he's going to kill again, which Fran wants to try to prevent, while Dr. Richmond doesn't think she's equipped. Now, when I learned this was a sequel that plays kind of like a prequel as well, I was pretty intrigued to see what they would do with this. It is interesting, as much like I stated, this is indeed taking place after the third movie, so there is no continuity broken there. But even more so, we get to see that the events as they play out before Psycho happened, as well as get to see where things play out after this. Now, this is an interesting to me, is that we not only get to see Norman as the killer in the original, it then shows someone who is pushed into doing these things in the second and third one. We got secondhand accounts from those that knew him from those different times, but this is actually the first time we're getting to see him recount the events that led for him to be what he is in the movie Psycho. Of course, though, we do need to factor in that Norman has had a few psychotic breaks, and even though he went through treatment, I'd still say that he's an unreliable narrator. For me, though, this movie does give some problematic aspects to the story. I do agree that some of the things that we do see Norma are creating the trauma that the movie is showing for Norman. I don't want to delve too much into each one here to avoid spoilers, but Thomas is showing us a teenage guy who's going through hormonal changes. Norma being portrayed by Hussey makes this interesting, as I always envisioned Norma to be less attractive due to the voice that we hear from Psycho and the other films. Norma, though, has mental illness, which we get to see play out. She blames some things on Norman that are out of his control, and I can see why he feels the way that he does. This is especially when he becomes aroused by her, but due to biology or finding a magazine as hidden in his room, I can't fault him that he lashes out when she brings home Chet Rudolph, who is the guy, the boyfriend that we all know the faded thing that happens with those two. There is an instance I wanted to bring up that doesn't work for me, though. This movie is trying to claim that Norman takes on his mother's persona because as one of the punishments, he is locked in a closet with lipstick put on him and wearing a dress. I really don't think this fits and feel this might have been more of a product at the time that this came out as this probably was closer to what the scientific thinking was. What she does to him is traumatic, but I don't think it would, I think it goes a bit too far in claiming that that's why he starts to dress up as her. I would say to be honest that Chet does more to him with the boxing gloves than that one incident does to me personally. The last thing with the story I wanted to cover would be the crux of what this movie is getting at. I thought this is an interesting little thing to play on, to be honest. I don't want to necessarily spoil it, but it is something that is hit it at. Norman in this is married to Connie, who is portrayed by Donna Mitchell. He has legit fears, but I don't want to say, I don't know if I would buy that she would be married to him with what her profession is, as she is like a nurse or a doctor for the mental hospital that he was in. That was just something that struck me, but this movie does explore the concept of is insanity something that could be genetic shifting over to the acting i thought this was really good as well perkins just really embodies this character for me whenever i see him even though i know he's done other things and i've actually seen him in a few other roles where i thought he was really good in those he just is norman bates and i think this movie is no different it just adds more layers to the character and i even thought that thomas nailed the mannerisms and does a really good job at being a younger version of him now, I'm a big fan of Olivia Hussey, even though she might be too attractive to be Norma for me. I digress, though, and it makes sense why Norman has some of the issues that he does. I thought that Pounder does really well in driving the story, along with Schuster. 
it was a fun to see a horror legend like John Landis make an appearance as well, as he is the producer for the radio show that Fran Ambrose runs. I'd say overall that the acting was good for what was needed and rounded this movie out. Now, I wanted to cover next the effects. Being that this is still early in the 90s, they don't use CGI, which I can appreciate. The effects were done practically, and I thought that worked. We get to see some stab wounds, and the blood look real enough for me. The cinematography was also well done. Now, the last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. It is hard to give too much credit as they reuse the score from the original movie. Now, I will say that this is still an iconic score, and it fits this movie for what they needed. It isn't original by doing their own thing. It is something that I just wanted to stay on the record. Now, with that said, all four movies in the series are solid, which can't always be said when you're making sequels to an absolute classic like this original one is. I think there are some interesting aspects of the story, even though not all of them work for me. The movie is edited together very well with an artistic flair. The acting and the effects were good, even though the soundtrack is one used in the original. I think with that being said, as a prequel sequel, I can be a bit forgiving why they use it as they do. I would say, though, that this is an above-average movie. And if you're a fan of the original as well as any of the sequels and want to see how this tragic story of Norman Bates plays out, I would definitely give this a viewing as well. Now, with that said, my rating here was going to be a 7 out of 10. And then next I have Cry Wolf from 2005. This was directed by Jeff Wadlow, who also co-wrote this with Bo Bauman. This stars Julian Morris, Lindy Booth, and Jared Padalecki. This is a drama horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being eight unsuspecting high school seniors at a posh boarding school who delight themselves on playing games of lies come face to face with terror and learn that nobody believes a liar even when they're telling the truth. Now this is a movie that I remember seeing my freshman year of college. It would make sense as I graduated in 2005 and probably saw this when I was visiting home as I believe my sister had this on DVD. And I won't lie, I really like that, and that was the only time I actually saw it all the way through. And I do know that I've actually recommended this to other people around that time as well as stating that it was good. Now I decided to give this a rewatch as the horror encyclopedia that I'm working through, this was the next title that I had not officially reviewed. So I watched it with my girlfriend and wasn't sure how this was going to hold up. Now just to kind of fill in a little bit more of the backstory, we have a murder that takes place of a girl named Becky as she's running through the woods. Now, at this posh boarding school, as the synopsis states, a new kid, who is Owen, portrayed by Julian Morris, shows up and he's looking around and can't find where to go. Now, Dodger, who is portrayed by Lindy Booth, exits the one of the main buildings and kind of fills him in that there's an assembly that the police are putting on right now and that she was just ducking out of it. And then a Miss McNally, who is portrayed by Jane Beard, comes out and scolds Dodger, but Owen covers for her. Owen then has to share a room with Tom, who is Padalecki. Tom is a jock, but he's not too much of a jerk, actually. It actually seems like a pretty cool guy. But in the middle of that first night, he wakes up Owen and tells him they're going to go play a game. Owen isn't interested until he learns that Dodger is the one that invited him. Now, the basis of this movie is this game here, where Dodger randomly selects someone, in this case, Owen, and the goal is to accuse your friends of lying to try to figure out who the wolf is and who everyone else is the sheep. Now, if you can guess who that person is, this person wins all the money, but if nobody guesses who the wolf is correctly, that person gets all the money. Now, at the end of it, Owen ends up winning his first night and then makes a comment about them being bored rich kids, which Dodger takes offense to. Now, 
they end up deciding that they're going to play this game on a much larger scale and incorporate this murder that recently happened. And Owen sends the first email with all of their rules and everything that they drafted up, but put in the subject line that he forwarded it on to try to make it seem like this is a real thing. But they're trying to set up that there is a serial killer that targets boarding schools like the one they're at. But he starts off killing somebody who is considered a townie to start off with. And then it becomes a game of them trying to convince all of the other students who are now the sheep while these ones that are playing the game are the wolf. But then it does seem that there actually might be a person who is acting out this game that they created and actually killing people. Now, with that recap out of the way, since I've already said I did really like this movie the first time that I saw it, I'm pretty sure that, like I said, I even recommended it to other people. This intrigues me as this is technically the first PG-13 slasher film. If you consider this a slasher, which I do, but the interesting thing is the only reason it's a PG-13 rating is because this was going to get a R, but they decided to edit out all of the more gory scenes, and you can actually, I believe, get a DVD or even a Blu-ray where it does have that footage back in there and is considered unrated because of it, but I will say this movie does remind me of another one that is a quite a popular 80s slasher in the horror community. I won't say the title, though, as I do feel as a major spoiler and don't want to do that. What I will say, though, is I do find the story intriguing, even though I kind of remembered the reveal. It had probably been about 15 years since my first viewing, so not all of it came back to me. There's a lot of moving pieces, and for the most part, I would say that that works. The reason that all of this is happening is pretty ruthless, if I'm going to be honest. Someone has really out just ruined somebody's life and used this as a way to cover up something that they want to do. That is... What makes this quite intriguing, i it's not that I couldn't imagine it, because that's not the case. As the person's pretty much a sociopath, borderline on psycho, it does bring an interesting idea for someone that has fought for so much in their life that has nothing will stop them type attitude, but I do admire that it's not just the way it's done here by itself. Now that will take me to the pacing of the movie, which I'm not going to lie, I was pretty bored this time around. I think that when I first watched it as an 18 year old kid, I dug it. On top of that, it has a pretty much that feel that you get of a mainstream slasher. And I had seen all the ones from like the 80s, you know, your Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. It kind of feels like some of the ones in those that are not as good, but this definitely is polished in a way that it is clean and really geared towards teens which is interesting to see that Wadlow has done films like for Blumhouse, Truth or Dare, and Fantasy Island, because it has that feel even though this came out, you know, almost 15 years before most of them did. I would say that this is dated as well because they use the AOL Instant Messenger, as that died out when I was still in college with the rise of text messaging and chat apps that are on our phones. I still think the reveal and all of the moving parts were good, but the movie itself just really isn't and had trouble keeping my attention. Now, taking this to the acting, I'm not going to lie, it was hit or miss for me. I thought that Morris was good as the lead. He looks so young and a bit naive that I think it really works for his role with how things play out. I'm actually a fan of Booth, but I think her performance here is off. She tries to play this mysterious and sexy throughout, especially how she talks with a more subdued tone. It just doesn't feel natural. And I think part of that is because I've seen her, how she acts in other movies, and that is more of a natural thing. I don't think she's bad here, though. Just that the direction for her doesn't work. Padalaki, Jesse Jansen, Sandra McCoy, Paul James, Ethan Cohn, 
and Christy Wu, I thought were all fine as the group of friends that are the crux of like this main group that play this game. I did think that cameos by Gary Cole as Owen's father and John Bon Jovi as their English teacher was pretty interesting. Overall, I would just say that the acting is pretty average at best. Now, something that's a big problem for me is the effects. When you're doing a slasher, you either need to have a really good story or really good kills. Now, the film does have an interesting story, but as I said, it's a bit implausible, and they really just scaled back the kills. I don't think I have the unrated cut on DVD, but I could be wrong here. The deaths were really backloaded, and they just give us flashes of them and almost a montage each time one of them is happening. The film is shot well in building suspense, so I will give it credit still for that, but I do have to mark it down for the kills. Now with that said, this movie unfortunately didn't hold up as well as the younger version of me remembered it, and that does make me a bit sad. I think that the concept is good, and there's a lot of moving parts that did work for me. The problem though is that I had trouble keeping my interest with how polished it was for a slasher film. The acting is hit or miss as I said. I wanted more from the effects, and the soundtrack just really didn't stand out. Overall, I would say this is pretty indifferent to the movie, and though it was very average, I would recommend this for younger fans to help get them into slasher films, but it might be a bit outdated with this technology to keep their interest though, so I had to come in here with a 5 out of 10. Next up I have The Killing of a Sacred Deer from 2017. This was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who also co-wrote this with Ephelmus Philippou. This stars Colin Farrell, Barry Keoghan and Nicole Kidman. This is a drama mystery thriller from Ireland in the United Kingdom. This is sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Stephen, a charismatic surgeon, is forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his, his life starts to fall apart when the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. Now, this was a film that I'd heard about through podcasts, and I was intrigued to check it out. I knew a few different things that I had heard that this movie was odd, and that it was really about it, as I avoided walkthrough reviews and spoilers for the most part. Now, just to delve a little bit deeper into this, we have Stephen Murphy. We get to see him interact with a co-worker who is an anesthesiologist, who is Matthew Williams, portrayed by Bill Camp. From there, he goes to a diner to meet with Martin, who is Keoghan. And I should point out that Murphy, uh, Stephen Murphy is portrayed by Colin Farrell. Now, Martin shows up late, but Stephen doesn't seem to mind. Martin ends up grabbing food and they chat. And then the two of them drive down to the river where they talk about different subjects and Stephen gives him a gift. From here, we get to meet Stephen's family as he is married to Anna, who is Nicole Kidman. And I believe she's an eye doctor who runs her own clinic. He has a daughter who is Kim, portrayed by Raffi Cassidy, who is into choir. And I get the feeling that Steven prefers her to his son, Bob, who is Sonny Siljic. And the boy is younger, and he is a bit defiant towards his father's wishes. Now, he does try to keep the two of them, as I said, separate. But then he ends up inviting Martin over to dinner. And it is here that Kim seems to be attracted to Martin. And then we get a weird scene where Steven goes to Martin's place for dinner, where we get to meet his mother, who is Alicia Silverstone. As she comes on to him, he rebuffs the attempts and then tries to distance himself. But finally, the two of them do end up sitting down together, where it is turned out that Steven is going to have to make the ultimate decision and sacrifice as there's going to be an affliction that comes over his family where it'll start with they'll lose the feeling of their limbs and no longer be able to walk. They will then refuse food, followed by their eyes bleeding, and this will result in death. Now, the horrible thing here is that a sacrifice has to be made, and it is the ultimate one, you could say. 
Steven at first is resistant to believe, and once things start to happen, Anna gets involved and decisions are made, some of which are extremely unimaginable. Now, the first thing that I really want to lead off here is that this is an odd movie. I know many were talking about how the people in this movie speak, and I tend to agree. It feels like it is written by someone where English is not their first language, and it comes off very awkward. It does give me a vibe of a movie that we're seeing is a classic tale, something like a Greek or Roman myth that is playing out in modern times. And I have to say, this gave me an uncomfortable feeling for sure. Now, I normally stick with fleshing out my ideas with the story, but since I've already leaned into the eerie and uncomfortable feeling that I got, I want to talk about the soundtrack of this movie. I watched it on Netflix with the subtitles on, and they would legit state the feel of the music, and it's dead on. There were a few times where my anxiety went way up, and a lot of this was just the score used. It is louder in some places to the point where you can't hear the characters talking, but it is the point. It isn't important to hear what they're saying, but we're given the feel of the scenes and to see everything as they play out. Now back to the story. I did read that this is based off of Iphigenia in Aulis by Euripides, who I believe was a Greek if memory serves. I'm not familiar with this story, but I found it to be interesting that Kim actually wrote an essay on it and it is referenced by her principal when Stephen visits. I feel this is an interesting meta aspect to the film. Now that I'm, since I'm not familiar with this work, I had to look it up after the fact, but I will say that when I heard it in the scheme of the movie, I thought there was a connection. The last thing I want to go over before moving on would be, I wondered what the title had to do with the movie. It makes sense when Martin tells the rules to Steven and then it clicked home. There's a supernatural angle here where the teen is getting revenge on Steven for allowing his father to die. And what I like about this, though, he doesn't seem malicious in his t intent. Despite that he is hurting deep down inside, he does really seem to like Stephen. And Stephen claims to Anna that Martin had something wrong mentally, which I somewhat agree with. There's something off about the boy. And this is where there's a slight detriment with how the dialogue is done with what could be where I'm feeling this from. Regardless, I do think the trauma of what happened to him has affected Martin so deeply that he is seeking revenge. And I mean, I do feel like Steven should be punished for the malpractice. And we kind of learn, you know, what the reasoning behind that was in the scheme of the movie. But it is kind of horrible to see that it is playing out on his family aren't necessarily to blame for everything that has gone on. Now, shifting this over to the pacing, this movie does drag, but not necessarily in a bad way. I think a good portion of this is just an uncomfortable feeling that I had throughout. The movie does run over two hours long, and I'm not going to lie. I checked to see how far I was in with about 30 minutes in the, into the movie. And then I felt another sense of dread coming over me, wondering where this was going to go. I never got bored. I do want to point that out. This is really a slow burn, and it has an art house flair to it for sure. I did like the ending and the bleakness of where things ended up. I just think there could have been a little bit that could have been trimmed as some things just kind of get driven home a little bit too much in my opinion. Now that will take me to the acting, which I thought was good across the board. Farrell is an interesting actor to me because for whatever reason, I don't really care for him, but I can't think of a bad role that I've ever seen him do. I think that he does really well at playing this arrogant doctor who is refusing to take responsibility until he's faced with the most difficult decision of his life. Keoghan is amazing as well. There's something not quite right about him that we get from the beginning. Socially, he's awkward. This is compounded by how the script is written, but I can tell that despite that, Kidman is really good as well, especially the lengths that she'll go as the counterpoint to her husband where she believes what is happening. I thought that Siljic and Cassidy are solid as well. They do offer their opinions on things that make it even more uncomfortable. On top of that, we see that Cassidy in her underwear, and that really made me feel uncomfortable. 
Silverstone as Martin's mother is fine in the cameo along with Camp and the rest of the cast. We also do get to see Kidman nude, which I have to say she still looks great for her age, by the way. And the last thing to go over would be the effects of the movie. There's not a lot until the effects that Martin says will happen. We actually get to the point where Bob's eyes are bleeding and it looked quite real to be honest. Both him and Kim performance when their legs aren't working was good. I also thought that using actual footage from surgeries was a nice touch to add to the realism. On top of that, the look of the film helps to add to the eerie feel along with some really good cinematography as well. Now with that said, this is an intriguing film that I can't re recommend to everyone. I really like the allegorical tale that we're getting here of a difficult decision one man has to make in punishment of something that he did. When I say difficult, I mean pretty much impossible. The acting is good across the board in bringing this to life. The effects and how the movie was shot are both solid as well. The soundtrack is one of my favorite parts with how it made me feel. I do feel the movie could have been trimmed slightly as it does run a bit long. The bleak ending though was on point and I still really enjoyed this movie overall. I find it to be good, but again, it is artsy and if you don't like these type, I would avoid this as I don't think this is for you. It is from A24, so if you like their films, you know what type of vibe for this depressing movie. Now I came in here with an 8 out of 10. And for the next review is going to be the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde rock and roll musical from 2003. This is directed by Andre Champagne. It comes from a screenplay from Alan Birnhoff and Robert Ricucci. And this is also from the novel from Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a comedy horror musical sci-fi from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a and a three stars on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Dr. Henry Jekyll experiments with scientific means of revealing the hidden dark side of man and releases a murderer from within himself. Now, this is a movie that I'm not entirely sure how I got turned on to. I'm assuming that when I was searching out all of the different takes on the Robert Louis Stevenson novel, this one popped up, so I decided just to grab it as it was probably pretty cheap at that time. So this would have been right after, I believe, college, if memory serves correctly. Now, musicals are pretty much hit or miss for me. The ones that I like, I really like, and the ones that I don't, I, you know, the counterpoint to that. So I was intrigued to see how this would work out. Now, we start this movie off being in the house of Robert Louis Stevenson. He wakes up in the middle of the night, but we only get extreme close-ups of him. So I'm assuming he's being played by Bierenhoff as well. We see that his place is haunted, and this seems to be the explanation of how he came up with his novel, The Strange Case of Henry Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It then shifts to present-day Los Angeles, where Dr. Jekyll is Bierenhoff and performs his experiment, and it causes him to become Edward Hyde. And in this modern Los Angeles, we have all of the same characters from the novel. So we have, like, his fiance is Anne, who is portrayed by Lisa Peterson. We have Dr. Richard Lanyon, who is Terrence Marinan. And then Poole is portrayed by Rikuchi. And he lives with Poole with Dr. Lanyon is his co-worker at a clinic that they work together at. And he's the one telling him that he is putting too much time into his experiments and neglecting his responsibilities. But Dr. Jekyll believes that what he's doing is going to be groundbreaking. And then as he becomes Mr. Hyde, he starts to lose control. So Utterson, who is John David Hefferin, his lawyer, starts to be concerned along with everybody else in his life. And they wonder who this Mr. Hyde is. Now, I have to say that what we got here, 
I wasn't really sure what I was going to be expecting. The story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is an interesting one with the fact that it is looking at the duality of man, and when you remove their conscience through science, what would happen? I think that there are some interesting things that you can explore here, and some of the other versions of this tale that I've seen definitely do that. That isn't what we got here though, to be honest. There's not really a coherent story here, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Movie does a good job at introducing us to, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Anne, and Poole. The problem is then that we never really get to see Anne and Dr. Jekyll interact after he proposes. There should have been something there other than a couple of musical numbers, like her wanting to go visit him or seeing Poole to inquire about him. Just something, but we don't get that. To give a positive though, I did like that all of the people that Mr. Hyde targets, for the most part, are people that have semi-wronged Dr. Jekyll or is standing in his way. He goes after Dr. Lanyon when he won't give Mr. Hyde the bag of chemicals and supplies that Jekyll needs, or that Utterson is leery of changing his will. This does get thrown out the door though when Amanda Lennox, who is Susanna Devereaux, and Ellie, who is Maria Ann Cress, are attacked as Amanda is just a patient at his clinic and Ellie is a woman he picks up at a bar. This, I feel like, is just showing that Mr. Hyde is really just an evil human being. I also wanted to say that there's a few different scenes of violence towards women here. We get to see that two different moments where Hyde is going after Ellie and Amanda pretty viciously. I don't understand why though. I get that he's supposed to be the embodiment of evil, and I don't mind if he kills both of these characters, but it just seems out of place and over the top with how violent they're showing these scenes. Like I said, I don't mind him attacking him, it just felt over the top and almost just there for shock value that we don't necessarily need because the movie doesn't really do well enough in establishing things. And then for the pacing of the movie, I just don't feel there's really a coherent narrative. I will say that I feel like it started off well in introducing us to the characters, but then it really just has musical numbers that don't really go together, and then giving us set pieces with different things that came up that are borrowed from the novel. Really the only thing that is keeping it semi-together would be Inspector McCree, who is William Frederick Knight, and his investigation into Mr. Hyde and what he's been doing. It does feel like an amateur screenplay that focused more on the music than the actual three-act story. I did like how it ended though, and I feel that it might have been too long only because we didn't get anything to fit together necessarily, so it just doesn't mesh. Then that'll take me to the acting, which is kind of hard to talk about. I thought that Birnhoff was fine as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but that is mostly because I thought he was a solid singer. He was pretty wooden aside from that and did a better Mr. Hyde for sure. Peterson was fine along with Devereaux, Heffron, Knight, Cress, Marinen, and Rikuchi. I wasn't really impressed with anyone though to be honest, but the singing wasn't bad so I'll give credit there. And then for the soundtrack, I do think this is probably one of the best parts of it, but I don't think it's great by any stretch. I do have to give Birnhoff credit as he did come up with some catchy songs. It won't be any that I would listen to again after seeing this, but I thought he did a pretty good job there. Some of the ones didn't fit and I think it might have been better suited doing a period piece to be honest, as one of the songs is called the London Fog, but we're in Los Angeles, so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, except for the fact that there have been a lot of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde stories that are equating him to being Jack the Ripper, so I get that they're trying to play on that, but it just doesn't fit in this movie if you're going to make it modern. This is also rock and roll, so I also think that's partly why they brought it to modern times. I just don't think it worked, to be honest. Now, the last thing was the effects. There were a few times that the musical numbers felt like music videos, and I did think that was pretty decent. The effects other than that weren't very good. 
I did think that Mr. Hyde's look was fine, the bit of blood that we got as well, and some of the aftermath of the attacks. On the whole though, it really looked like they didn't have a lot of budget to do it, and it just looked cheesy. So with that said, this movie isn't very good. We are definitely getting inflated ratings on the internet movie database by cast, crew, family, and friends in my opinion. I will give credit that there were some good aspects of the story, and some of the musical numbers were catchy. The story was lacking, and the acting was decent at best. The effects weren't very good. There really is a missed opportunity here for what Bernhoff did, as I do think there is potential. I have to rate this movie as well below average though, and this is me trying to find things to give it credit. I don't think I can recommend this, if I'm going to be honest, unless you want to have some drinks, see some cheesiness, and laugh along with the musical style numbers, but my rating here for this movie is a 3.5 out of 10. And for my last mini review of this week, it is going to be Cujo from 1983. This is directed by Louis Teague. It comes from a screenplay by Don Carlos Dunaway and Barbara Turner, as well as the novel by Stephen King. This stars Dee Wallace, Daniel Hugh Kelly, and Danny Pintaro. This is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Cujo, a friendly St. Bernard, contracts rabies and conducts a reign of terror on a small American town. Now, this is a movie that I remember watching for the first time, I believe with my mother and sister. My dad might have been with us as well, but I don't know, and I think we rented it from the local video store, as this would have been right around the time that I was spreading out as a horror fan, and my first steps to see movies that I had never saw before while growing up were to check out all the Stephen King adaptations as I was reading all of his books at the same time as well. This one bothered me as a kid just due to the realism of what we were seeing, but it had been some time since my last viewing, so I was curious to see how this was going to hold up for me. Now, just kind of filling a little bit more from the backstory here is that we start off seeing a dog chasing after a rabbit. This, of course, is Cujo. This St. Bernard chases it into a small opening of a cave where he barks, wakes up some bats, and one of them bites him on his nose, causing it to flee home. We then follow the family of the Trentons. The mother is Donna, who is Dee Wallace, as she's preparing breakfast for her son, Tad, who is Pintaro and her husband, Vic, who is Kelly. He's in marketing, and his major account is for a cereal company. Then there's a scene where Steve Kemp, who is Christopher Stone, is the local handyman bringing home what I'm assuming is the horse part of a rocking horse that has been stripped. Donna seems to be ignoring him, though, and we learn that the reason is that she is having an affair with him. And what makes this worse, though, is Vic seems to be semi-friends with him as they play tennis together. Now, it should be pointed out that Tad is afraid of monsters in his closet, and his father does whatever he can to convince him that there are nothing, that there's nothing there. And they get introduced to a local handyman who is Joe Camber, portrayed by Ed Lauder. And it is there that we also get to meet his wife, Charity, who is Kaiolani Lee, and her son, Brent, who is Billy Jane as he has Cujo as his dog and there's an interaction where Tad is afraid at first but it shows that this dog is quite friendly. Now with a series of just crazy events that happen, Donna tries to take her car out to Joe but she doesn't realize that his wife and son have gone on vacation and something happens to him with Cujo and the car ends up breaking down while there and Cujo has gone full rabid by that point, trapping them inside of the car in a hot summer day where nobody knows where they're at and they have to try to find a way to survive. Now to get back to my experience with this movie, I think I saw this before I got around to reading the book. 
I was intriguing as this movie does a pretty good job at incorporating a lot from the source material into this movie. And it has been some time since I had read it. And really the only thing I remember is our being the ending being different. I know King has went on to say that he prefers the ending to the movie. Where now that I'm older, I can understand things a bit better. I think I might be right there how things play out with him as well. As it makes a bit more sense as in his novel, there's a bit more of an, like, an epilogue that explains things. So I think his is problematic where this movie makes it have a bit more sense to how things play out. Something else I brought up is why this is scary to me. I think there are just some slight liberties taken, but not many. This really is based in reality and just a perfect storm of how bad things that are happening here. As I was saying earlier, Donna and Vic are at ends, plus he's stressed with work and has to leave town. Steve and her are also at ends as well. Joe's family is out of town and we get to see things play out with him. It is terrifying that no one knows Donna and Tad are there. It is the summer, so they're stuck in this hot car that won't start with this massive animal just patrolling the area. A dog this big going rabid is unnerving with no one around to help just because of just the sheer size and force of it. And I'm not going to lie, I'm terrified of big dogs because of something like this happening. Really the only issues that I have with the story are just how things play out with Tad. Now I was watching this with Jamie and I was wondering if him having seizures like he does is possible. So I asked that and she didn't think so as he's really just experiencing dehydration due to having very little water and being trapped in this hot car. I think the concept is genius though as cars amplify the heat especially in the summer. So with that setup it does make sense that he would you know be dehydrated just not necessarily the medical things that there have happening. As for the pacing, I really don't have any issues. I think it is strategic that in the first half, it is getting to know all the players in the story, including Cujo. I like that we get to see this poor animal sinking into madness from this bite that went unattended. And I did read a review online stating that they were surprised that nobody noticed this. The dog seems to kind of go off and does its own thing. So I could figure that the boy might not realize that it's happened and not you know, alert anybody to it because this dog just kind of does its own thing as it roams the woods and, you know, why, like areas around it. The second half of the movie is really just seeing Donna trying to work out a way to get away from this dog and get to safety. I like that we're seeing some of her plans failing as it isn't too convenient. The animal might be a bit too powerful, but I'm willing to overlook that. And then I've already brought this up, but where the they leave the ending, it works. As the book gives more of an epilogue that for my memory is problematic. So leaving this one where it does was fine with me as things could play out just slightly different and actually work and I don't have any problems there. Now I thought the acting was pretty strong. Wallace is a veteran actress and I love that she's been in a few iconic horror movies for me. I thought she does good here as the mother trying to protect her son. I do hate her though slightly for cheating on her husband but I like that we get a flawed character though. Pintaro was fine as this boy in his first feature role. He was pretty cute at the time, but he's also annoying, so I do find that to be realistic. I feel bad for Kelly as Donna confirms that he's a good husband, but it seems like she wants more. He seems slightly broken as his life is falling apart around him, so his performance fits. Stone is a jerk and isn't necessarily needed in this movie, but I thought his performance was fine. Louder is a jerk and it just feels natural as there's been a few different roles where I see him like this, and he just fits into that perfectly. I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Props to all the dogs that were used as they brought a realism that made me feel bad for what was happening as they descend into madness. The last thing to go over would be the effects of the movie. 
They went practical, which works best in my eyes. Jamie noticed that at the first attack scene, the dog was wagging its tail and that made me smile. The dog was just enjoying what he was doing in working with the stunt person and just being a good boy. I had no issues with the look. They hide the attacks themselves, just showing us the aftermaths, as they do. I think that this was a good route to go. Seeing how dirty Cujo looks ends up making it feel even more real. thought the cinematography was good in the framing that they did. Now with that said, this film I have a lot of nostalgia for, having seen it at it early into my branching out into more horror film days. I think that this really embodies the feel of King's novel for sure. It is terrifying idea that this could really happen if all the factors line up right like we get here. The look of the dog is great, and I think they frame things well to help there. I thought all the performances were fine. I don't necessarily know if we need to have some of the backstory of some of the characters though, as it doesn't necessarily add too much, but I digress. I think this is a good movie in my opinion. I would also recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike. It is a creepy story, but they hide most of the blood and gore. It is just a good story that is based in realism. So my rating here is going to be an 8 out of 10. And that is all the mini reviews I have for this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my first featured review. What age did this behavior start? When he was a baby. He didn't like to be touched. By the time he was 16, I didn't know who he was anymore. What are you recording me for? What kind of kid wants to turn his pellet gun into an automatic weapon? Stop already. Serious. Let's go. Ow. You're hurting me. Testing? Yes, I am spying on my son. That is a live feed. I'm making these videos for you, for all you other moms out there. Hey, Detective Kelly, um, mom's freaking out again. Knock it off. What if it's genetic? <laughs> Mom? Three. Where is it? Two. I warned you. One. Chico! Stop it now! Do you feel Jacob is capable of harming you, Abby? He's still there? You better be. For my first featured review on this episode, it is going to be MOM, Mothers of Monsters. This came out this year in 2020. This is written and directed by Tusia Lyman. It stars Melinda Page Hamilton, Bailey Edwards, and Edward Asner. This is a thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a distraught mother suspects her teenage son is plotting a school shooting, but when he slips through the cracks of the system, she is forced to take matters into her own hands. Now, this is a movie that I first heard about through some podcasts that I listened to, and I do have to really give credit to Scott Crawford, who has been singing this film's praises from the... Friday Nightmares podcast along with his co-host Heather Powell. Now they compared this to something like We Need to Talk About Kevin which I randomly watched when I was working at Family Video and I remember coming in and just taking it home and just being pretty devastated with how heavy that movie was but it was heavy in a way where I really liked it but it was one that I couldn't watch for some time just because I needed to be you now fully prepared to check it out again and it is one that I do plan on revisiting at some point. Since I needed a 2020 horror film and the theaters are shut down, 
I thought this would make a good one to cover here on the podcast. Now for this movie, it is a little bit difficult to talk about in the fact that we have a lot of moving parts here. This is a found footage film that is mostly from videos that Abby Bell, who is Hamilton, has on her computer. Now she's the mother of Jacob, who is Edwards. She's suspicious that her son, like the Synopsis states, could be a psychopath and that he's planning to do a school shooting. We are then given information as to why she thinks that. And just some things that I remember just off the top of my head is that he's prone to violent mood swings. He believes in racism and things of that type nature where he does have some like Nazi memorabilia and he does make some racist slash xenophobic comments. But the interesting thing is that he does listen to some rap music that you know are done by black people so i don't necessarily know if he is racist i think it's more of xenophobic is the issues that he has since this is all told to us through home movies her recordings on her phone along with security cameras that she has placed within the house she also has access to her son's icloud so we really do get her pulling in footage off of that as where where they're intercut and laced together where we kind of get to see things from her point of view as well as him which I thought was an interesting way to do this. And we also get to see his interactions with Greg, one of his friends portrayed by Julian DeLaCelli, and then his girlfriend Lily, who was portrayed by Lily Pepper. Now, Abby is a single mother who is trying to convince doctors that her son Jacob is insane, as I've been saying. He has been checked out quite a few times by different doctors and psychiatrists who keep clearing him. She believes that he's outsmarting them and she's also recounts a discussion with her mother who goes by Nana to him and then her name is Millie though as she's portrayed by Janet Ulrich Brooks that all of the stuff that she's doing is going to go on his personal record and this could ruin him as a full-grown adult but the interesting thing here is that Jacob does have mood swings some of them going pretty explosive and quite violent which we do get to see these actually play out on top of that, he has been expelled from a couple different schools. He has a pretty sick sense of humor and a bleak look on society as well as life. Now, it's hard for me to say he's necessarily a psychopath because of some of these things. It's more of what we're seeing from her point of view is all of these things, if you look at them as a whole, where some of these people could be just getting, you know, bits and pieces of it, where they don't necessarily fit together the way she thinks that they do. Then the question here becomes, from the evidence that is presented, is Jacob as crazy as his mother believes him to be? Or is she the one with the mental issues that is projecting them onto her son and that it is actually she's the one that needs to have someone to talk with? Now, not wanting to continue to repeat myself, but this does have some intriguing ideas here that are presented in a natural way with found footage and a good time for this to come out. Abby's initial issue is that her son is gonna shoot up the school, and this is backed up with a project that he did. He has a perfect explanation as to why he added the people to a schematic of the school, where he actually has it detailed down to how big the rooms are, how far apart the doors are, just things of this nature, where you don't really necessarily need to have the people, where it does look like he could be planning exactly what she's saying. Now, this did cause him to go to an aversion treatment, which gets brought up here by, by Nana, who was upset that this information was provided to the authorities. What is interesting here, though, as I feel if some of the Columbine kids had a parent like we get here with Abby, I don't know if that would necessarily happen like it did, because for a lot of the reports that I've seen, if the mother or the parents would have just kind of checked in on their kids, they might have noticed some of the things that were being planned because I guess they didn't, at least one of them didn't really do a great job of 
hiding the things that they had. Now, it could be naive on my part, but from as I was saying, from what I've learned, there was some neglect there and need to shoulder some of the blame. Definitely not all of it, because even if you're being bullied like they thought they were, you really can't do the things that you did because it's just not the best way to handle things, even though, like I said, bullying is a horrible thing that needs to be kind of corrected or kind of figured out, but just some of the things that I personally thought that could have prevented that horrible tragedy. And I do admit, this ignoring of the doctors does seem to be somewhat unrealistic in this day and age. I do have to say, but the farther this movie goes on, the more I started to think that Abby is obsessed and kind of seems like she's projecting as well. She is so convinced that she's right, and I would say she does push Jacob some of the times that he, she feels he's to blame is he's lashing out because of how far she is kind of antagonizing him. Now, she is the parent. He does need to listen to her, but there are some times where having a camera in the kid's face to try to get the reaction, it's hard to blame him for reacting. There's also this change in her that is depressing when she says that she loves him, but she probably can't stop him as no one will help her. She is then convinced that all she can do is release this footage detailing what he's done and what he's going to do to show that she is a as she is part of this thing called Mothers of Monsters. So it can hopefully help someone else down the line, which that's a pretty bleak outlook on all of this. And that's not to say that she doesn't have some things that she's right about, though, as well. She finds creepy things in his closet, as I will admit, I like the introduction of us to this stuff that she has found there. Now, there are some animals that you clearly see he's been somewhat torturing, which are the basis for psychopaths. Abby is harboring some things, and she is also showing signs that she might have some mental illness there. And the same could be said for Jacob. Now, legitimately, this could have been passed down, this traits, you know, genetically to him, to be honest. Now, I will have a slight spoiler section at the end of this, so I can delve a little bit more into the twist of this movie without ruining it for everybody else if you haven't seen this. The one thing I will say is that there is that Abby had a brother when she was younger who snapped and kind of might have had some really bad depression and mental illness himself, so I will delve a little bit more into that later. Now, not to say that everything in this movie worked for me, though. I do think that this runs a bit long. I thought that I was way up over an hour and 40 minutes, but looking at it, it is actually just under that. I think that about eight minutes or a bit more could have been cut from this, and it would have had tightened it up a lot more, to be honest. And I think that would have worked a little bit better for me because there was a couple times where I just feel like there is filler there. And I didn't get bored, but I did slightly lose interest. Uh, I would say a time or two. And I think that's because, as I was saying, that some of the stuff runs a bit long and it bogs it down. Again, I was never bored as if some of the stuff was quite powerful and it definitely made me feel quite uncomfortable, especially with really what happens at the climax and to see how this all ends up playing out in the end. Now, what this does have, though, I thought was some pretty powerful acting from the two main stars. Hamilton and Edwards are both amazing and play off each other so well. I did kind of think that his portrayal might be a little bit over the top, as he does come off as a jerk who is quite disrespectful. Now, I do know some people that are similar to him, but he is, I would say, a bit more exaggerated. And I'll admit, I probably had some shades of his disrespectfulness towards his parents in my youth as well. Now, I don't know anybody who is necessarily a bona fide psycho, so I do have to temper my feelings there a bit. What is scary, though, is some of the lengths that Abby is going to try to get her son to prove that he is insane, which is sad to be honest. The rest of the cast, though, are really good at developing these two main characters, 
and given us a little bit better insight outside of what they have in their interactions and it helps us get a better picture over all of this. This is especially true for Dr. Howard Arden, who is portrayed by Asner. Nana and Lily both help here as well. And the last thing to go over would be the effects, which thankfully, they aren't a lot of them. And this isn't a type of movie that really needs them. And I think the effects that we get here are things that are pretty legitimate. The different types of footage are good. And I like that we get a bit of diversity there. The more that we get also makes the question Abby more and more. Seeing the climax play out felt real and quite terrifying to be honest, which being found footage really does add an element to that for sure. And just a lot of this stuff just plays pretty creepy to be that something like this could possibly happen. Now with that said, this isn't the best in this subgenre of found footage that I've seen, but I like the idea that they're exploring with it. The acting here really helps, and I think that the diversity of footage is good but it also helps build even more sense of realism. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but it also doesn't need them. I'm glad that they didn't put a soundtrack over this as all of the music and sound is coming diegetically and it feels like it is really coming from the cameras. I think mine might have been off sync a few times with Jacob, but I don't know if that's just a different camera's microphone is picking up the sound. So the footage that we are seeing is, you know, a little bit delayed from what we're actually getting to hear. I still think that we need to talk about Kevin is more powerful, but this is a dark turn that really made me uncomfortable. During these times, I would actually recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike, just with how socially relevant this movie is at the moment. After this initial viewing, I'm going to come in with this as an above average movie. I do want to see this again though to see how I feel knowing how things play out in the end. So my rating here is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And what I'm going to do now is start the spoiler section here. I will have it time coded. So if you haven't seen this movie and don't want anything ruined, or if you don't care or you don't mind this being spoiled, go ahead and keep listening. But like I said, if you do want to skip over it, I will have that coded to get you to the trailer for the next featured review. But that spoiler section will start now. Now with everything that I've laid out, we see that Jacob is, you know, has quite the temper. His mother won't give back his PlayStation with how he's acting and she wants him to go visit his father. Now, she does make him a few different deals that he manipulates her and doesn't necessarily play it out how she wants it to. And she's also very vehemently against him buying violent video games, which with her suspicions make a whole lot of sense. Now, I don't agree with games being labeled where you actually have to be over a certain age. I do think that takes away from the parents making the decision, but I'll digress there. Now, getting back that he's supposed to go visit his father, she purchases him a bus ticket and everything. Well, he doesn't go. He just comes straight home after she drops him off at the bus station, and he just kind of hangs out. Now, he is very tech-savvy, so he realizes there's a camera in this picture frame as well as in the smoke detector in his room. Now, he also searches out in the media room that Abby has set up in her back of her closet. Now, when she comes home, her ex calls her, and she gives the phone to Jacob, he locks himself in his closet with it. Now, she tries to get it back, but he is ignoring her, so she goes to sleep, and then we end up getting this really creepy scene that night where he comes into her room and is videoing her while she is in bed. She wakes up to find that the picture frame and the camera from his room are now in hers. She goes to leave and is zapped as he has hooked up some car batteries to her doorknob, and this knocks her out. When she comes to, she's tied to a chair with cameras pointing at her and Jacob on one of them. He has secretly learned about her brother online as he said that, you know, everything is pretty much there, which 
this probably would have had newspaper articles, so it doesn't seem like it'd be that difficult. And like I said, he is tech savvy. Now, her brother actually had went on a killing spree where he had used a sawed-off shotgun to kill quite a few of his classmates. And that's some of the things that she has been documenting and has been trying to keep away from him. Jacob now comes up with a new plan that involves her recording a new ending that fits what he thinks, where she is admitting that she's a psycho and that she had a hand in her brother doing the things that he did. Now, when things don't go as planned, he locks her in a closet and holds her hostage there. Now, she descends into madness pretty quickly, but if you're locked in a dark closet like that, with just horrible things being fed to you, I can understand how she would lose it. And she did share a dream earlier in the movie to Dr. Arden about how she is envisioning herself up on a platform and that she is going to hang herself, but she feels that she is being, you know, forced there by Jacob. But Dr. Arden questions if that's the case, as she doesn't really necessarily know if somebody is there with her. What I like here, though, is it kind of feels like it's trying to go supernatural, but I don't think that's the case. He has discovered all of her footage and is using it to mess with her, which I think is even more depraved. The crazy thing is, though, he isn't as depraved as we think. Seeing the footage from how it is presented, we think that he snapped. We do see, though, that he's messing with her with a quick video that he made and was going to show that to her in the end of all of this. The problem, though, is he has caused her to snap and that she is also crazy. So I do think that this is definitely nature with both of them is that they are predetermined to have this. So his violent mood swings are more of just that she is always on his case and it causes him to lash out. But now that she has snapped, there's nothing he can do. And we get a quite creepy ending going back to that dream that she told Dr. Arden. And this is pretty much over the whole credit. So the whole time you're just kind of getting just this look at her that really made me feel quite uncomfortable. Now, I'm not going to necessarily give the complete spoiler to that, but that's just kind of the stuff that I wanted to delve into, you know, after this whole twist that gets us to the climax. But again, that's where I'm going to go ahead and end this here. But I'm going to get you over to the trailer for my second featured review.
for my second featured review of this episode is going to be The Bat Whispers from 1930. This is directed by Roland West. This is based upon the stage play from Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood, with the screenplay being adapted by Roland West as well. This stars Chance Ward, Richard Tucker, and Wilson Benji. This is a crime, thriller, horror, drama, mystery, comedy from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a master criminal terrorized the occupants of an isolated country mansion. Now, this is another film that I'd never heard of until I decided for my podcast to move through the, you know, move from the 1920s to the 1930s. Interesting fact is that this is the only horror film from the year that I could find as well. I was able only really to find four feature length ones, but the only one that wasn't lost or there wasn't like a print or anything out there was this one. And on top of that, they weren't really streaming anywhere either. Regardless, though, I did give this a watch as it was on YouTube. And what I want to lay off here stating is that this movie really did feel like a stage play. So seeing that's where it was based from, I'm not surprised in the least bit. The movie starts us off outside of a building where Mr. Bell, who is Tucker, lives. He has a bunch of police officers outside as he's received a note that a thief and murderer that goes by the bat is going to steal a necklace from him out of his safe without being caught. Mr. Bell scoffs and we see the bat is outside of his window, even though he's something like eight or nine stories up. Now, this man does exactly what he says when Mr. Bell brings the item to the window. Butler knocks on the door and when there's no answer, they come in to see the aftermath as the bat has left a card stating that he's going to the country. This movie then shows us a bank robbery that happens from a skylight above. The person is fleeing in his car from another one as somebody is following him in their car, and both vehicles end up at the Fleming's estate. He is supposed to be in Europe with Miss Cornelia Van Gorder, who is portrayed by Gracie Hampton, is occupying the mansion at this time. She has a maid who is high strung in Lizzie Allen, who is played by Maud Eburn. They hear something outside, and this spooks Lizzie, as pretty much everything spooks her, to be honest. Both people get in through a window in the basement that was fleeing from the bank, and then one of them goes out the laundry chute with a ladder. Lizzie thinks the place is haunted and is worried about the news of the bat, while Miss Cornelia is more level-headed, and it's actually pretty wild, as we see her playing with a Ouija board at one point as well. Robbery brings a great many people to this house, including Miss Cornelia's niece, Dale, who is Una Merkel. She is trying to get her fiance, who is Brooke, portrayed by William Bakewell. She's trying to get him a job as a gardener, even though he doesn't know anything about plants. And there's actually a pretty funny scene where Miss Cornelia goes through a bunch of different things, and he is giving her answers like they are plants, and it's actually different diseases or medical conditions. They both think the stolen money, though, is in the house, so they're trying to find it to clear his name, as he was the teller at the bank where it was stolen from. There's a Dr. Venries, who is portrayed by Gustav von Saveritz, who shows up mysteriously along with a Detective Anderson, who is Chester Morris. The detective is trying to follow the stolen money, and more people arrive here complicating the situation even more and it makes you wonder who stole the money and who is the bat. Now the first thing that really hit me when I turned this movie on is that we are now into the talkie era. So I was out of the silent films for my journey through the aughts. On top of that, the movie does do some interesting camera angles that we actually start off on a large clock tower before moving down to the road. This is still early cinema 
so a couple different times they're using toys and models but we see that this was used for the next few decades so it's not a problem here and it's actually pretty state-of-the-art and ahead of its time if i'm going to be honest and then as i've said earlier this is also staged like a play so i wasn't shocked as i said to see that this was based off of one this felt to me like another film from around this era called the cat and the canary which was also based off a of play so again not surprised I would say that the cinematography was good with how they hide things in the shadows as well. Now what I wasn't expecting is how violent this movie is. We really don't get to see the violence on screen, but that's not a big deal for me. I did have a slight problem here though, is I wasn't sure who some of the characters were and who was killed or not. It didn't surprise me though, as the Hays Code was adopted in this same year of 1930 here in the United States, but it wasn't enforced really until 1934. We do still get a bit of what they would push, though, at the end of this movie. But we do get some violence that I don't necessarily think would have been able to, you know, be made as prevalent as it did. This movie did have an interesting mystery for me. The character of the bat was intriguing. You don't get a lot of cat burglars who also kill people, but we do here. This character also speaks in whispers, which I think is twofold. It goes with the title, you know, being the bat whispers. But we learn that it is one of the characters in the movie, so it is done to hide his voice as well. As I was saying about the mystery, I like that we get introduced to all these different characters with different motives, as this almost kind of feels like an Agatha Christie type thing. The caretaker, who is Spencer Charters, is just an odd character in general. Brooke, as the teller at the bank and along with Dale, they claim that they just want to give the money back, but does he really? Dr. Venries is just creepy, and it is auspicious that Detective Anderson shows up as well as the nephew of the man who owns the estate, and that character being Richard Fleming, who is portrayed by Hugh Huntley. But I'm not going to lie, I had no idea who the bat was, and much like many Giallo films, I do want to rewatch this now that I know what happens, and to see if I can piece together everything over this night, and to see if there's any cheats or not here. I will admit though, I did have a slight issue getting into this movie. They do introduce all of the characters, but a few of them look so much alike to me that I had trouble picking out who was who. I'm glad this wasn't as difficult to see as many of the silent films are and I, as I had been watching, as this would have made it nearly impossible for me. I like the setting, as this house has secret rooms, which always kind of tickles my fancy, if I'm going to be honest. Despite this though, I did settle in and enjoyed how smart the bat is and the ending of the movie. I did find it to be interesting as it's the first of its kind is at the end the person who is the bat comes out and implores the audience to not give away his secret or that the bat would get them and i also kind of feel this is another thing so people didn't turn on that actor as well now taking this to the acting i thought they were fine my favorite would have to be hampton as the woman who is running this big house as I said earlier, she plays with a Ouija board, doesn't put up with nonsense, and won't be scared out of her house. I love that this film being 90 years old at the time of recording this is such a strong character. Ebron is that annoying, scaredy-cat, comedy-relief type character, but she does that role so well. Charters is very similar to her, while also being different, but plays on much of the same things, and I thought he was fine. I also thought Merkel, Bakewell... Seyferetz, Morris, and the rest of the cast really helped to build this mystery that had me guessing all the way through. Now, just a few bits of trivia before I close this out, as I'm not going to do a spoiler section with this movie, as there's not really all that much deeper things, and I really just don't want to give away the ending, but supposedly this is allegedly the film that inspired Bob Kane to create Batman. 
This was thought to be a long-lost film, but a nitrate print of this movie was discovered in the Mary Pickford estate in 1987, and then in turn was restored by the UCLA Film and Television Archive in 1988. The Magnafilm 65mm version of this was screened in about 18 large cities and was a financial disaster. Interestingly enough, the special effects were shot in 35mm, and the process photography techniques, not optical printing, was used to make the 65mm negative of this footage. This also was the first telecast on New York City's pioneer television station, W2XBS, Saturday, Mar May 4th of 1940. And it is one of over 200 titles in the list of independent feature films made available for television presentation by Advanced Television Pictures. Just some other things is because of the 65mm film required more light for a proper exposure, the actors were under much hotter than usual conditions due to all the extra lights used. Mary Pickford had purchased the rights to this film, hoping to produce a remake starring Humphrey Bogart and Lillian Gish, which would have been pretty interesting with those two characters. Uh, Roland West, the director, mainly shot at night because he didn't want any studio or other outside interference while he was working. So mad props to him to, you know, fight the system there. And then the last thing I wanted to go over was the revolver used in this movie by Miss Van Gorder is a Smith & Weston safety hammerless model. These featured a break action for loading and were made available between 1887 and 1940, and they were very popular during this era. So now with all the trivia there out of the way, I wasn't the biggest fan after watching this, but now that I've sat on it and thought about it, it is better than I realized. It really does feel like a play on a grander stage. The mystery did hook me in, and I thought the acting really helps to develop most of these characters. I did have some slight issues figuring out who was who at different times, but not enough to ruin things. Even though we don't really see any of the deaths as they happen off screen, I was still pretty surprised with how violent this movie is. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, but it also didn't hurt the film either. I would say that this is an above average movie, and one that I will seek out again, I will warn you though, this is from 1930, and it is in black and white, so if that's an issue, I would avoid this. But my rating here is going to be a 7 out of 10. As I said, I wasn't going to do a spoiler section, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank you all for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. To close out the show, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the written reviews from this episode or any of my past reviews, it is Reviews of the Dead, and that is at horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can add me on there at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, you can follow me at Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, David OSU87. And now, since I am hitting another milestone episode here at number 25, what I'm going to go ahead and do is, since I've watched all the movies from 1920 and 1930, since there was so few of them, I'm going to do a top list of the ones that I was able to see. And I think I'm also going to kind of throw out there the ones that are lost and not being able to be found at the moment. So I'm going to go ahead and do that for episode number 25. It'll probably end up being a little bit lighter episode because I'm going to try to... It's tough when I've already done full reviews for everything that's going to be on there. So I might just kind of delve into a little bit about what I did like from each of the movies and then why I put them in that place. But I will have that all ready to go for episode 25 next week. I want to thank you again for listening and I hope whatever you do today, you do it to the best of your abilities and have a great day. David Garrett Jr. signing off.